Okay, welcome to the Sunday edition of Progressive News Network with me, Janine Moloff, your producer and host. Uh, as per the advert, uh, today we're going to be talking about a Koch-funded group fighting that fought HR1 with Public Relations Live. We're also going to be talking about the new slimmer version of HR1, as well as the need for filibuster reform. Uh, we will also have our Jackass of the Week segment, and this one is going to be really fun. It, it features this uh, character that's on the Daily Wire, you know, with Ben Shapiro, and his name's Matt Walsh. And if you go to Matt Walsh's uh, personal website, which connects you to Daily Wire, by the other way, by the way, he just he is a self-described quote theocratic fascist. Now, you would think that any network that has any self-respect, as, you know, Ben Shapiro and his buddies claim on Daily Wire, that they would tell Mr. Walsh to tone it down. This theocratic fascist stuff is a bit far, but no, they just let him go along with it. And apparently Walsh has recently expressed this desire to limit voting rights to only those who deserve it, who can prove that they are deserving. And you can kind of make your own... Uh, your own estimate of who who Matt Walsh, a white conservative Christian male, would think is deserving of the privilege of voting. It wouldn't be a right anymore. It would be a privilege. But before all that, I am pleased to bring back and introduce Progressive News Network's founder, Rick Spizak. And Rick is such an incredible journalist. Uh, he was on the ground in Florida in 2000 with all that hanging shad crap where he was one of the few truly progressive voices that was reporting the truth from the ground regarding what was an election steal in Florida because they stopped counting the votes. Uh, he began reporting on the ground basically what corporate media refused to do. So with no further uh, explanation, Rick is going to give us a, uh, an editorial today, and I hope you enjoy it. So let me connect Rick. Hopefully I do this right. Rick, you there? Thank you. Thank you so very much. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, have at it, my friend. Okay. Uh, first things first, I, I have to say to my fellow progressive activists, my fellow Democrat activists, I think we need to stop debating these fools where they want us to go. Let's ignore their low ground and let's just tell the truth. Let their lies stand there ignored for what they are, a worthless, useless, anti-democratic pain to a future aristocracy of cash because it's been reduced to that. You know, they used to say, well, it's noble blood. Well, you know, they don't even pretend that it's noble cash. It's just cash. So yeah. I wrote these two little things, again, not to rationally address the foolish needy, greedy, racist crap, I'm, I'm pulling my punches, <laughs> that we hear in commercial media every day. But I wrote this little poem for the guy who claims to be our attorney general. This is called Merit's Garland. Like an African necklace will history place around his petty pre-purchase rubberneck History will place its just reward if Mitch's garland 
buries Justice Sword. Yes, he was gifted to old Obama like a placid infant to its mama, a ready, steady, quiet sleeper, kind of sort of unlikely to disrupt the favored order. Let's watch as the courtiers pillage from every township place of tillage and loll away at their leisure all undisturbed. Because of their crimes, there'll be no word. A big investigation will be held, but any charges, well, who can tell? Who is this AG, history will observe, who leaves all this villainy undisturbed? And all the top players will keep their booty, because our AG Garland's allergic to his duty. It's just so hard, they say, to fight white-collar crime even when produced in the light of day. So we avoid it and join it and reward it all the time, by the dollar, by the dime. But only petty criminals pay the fine. The biggers got their booty and no pursuity. There's just, you know, never time. Garland gets a pretty chair, a grand title, a limousine, and daily, daily golfs with folks of means. And all the while, he sups with golden cups and in full elegance dines. Yes, he may comfortable and quiet sit, but history will judge him by his unfleshed shit. It's not for his wilted wit and spine supine. Though that's a way to necklace he may avoid, though historians may levy a harsher fine, his name destroyed by this sour wine. Is there no desire in him to protect our democracy? Well, what the heck? If he casts his lot with old McConnell and never raises the cry to battle, he'll ne'er protect the sleeping cattle as they smear on invectin and make the sign of rabble-dabble, climbing through the windows of the chamber of the Senate just to wreck him because they resent democracy. They want to replace it with what? A less responsive autocracy. Merit, damn it. Is there no correction for this homegrown insurrection? Just another of those trials of littles, only while the biggies smile. Well, as usual, it's the big dog spree. They'll walk scot-free with all the money. One, two, three. They freely swindle, steal, and pillage. Steal the house, the car, the village. What the heck? Garland's got his pot of honey, and our respect. Well, that's funny. So after offering you that little food for thought, I also want to follow it up with this much, much tamer and much, you know, more reserved attack. Uh, Again, this is called Merritt Garlanded. McConnell chose him. Merritt Garland, heaven knows him. Can he clamber off the dime or like some soda, spoil the wine? Carefully, investigation slowly slowly grow unless the goal is to throw the show so much evidence out in the public what are they waiting for the roman republic has old merit quaffed the poison for which future historians will annoy him has he got no spine at all no plan to nail old trashy dumpy to the wall no trace for combat has he never there my dearies far from clever then i say may like prometheus may zeus take his liver Sold out like a shiny copper penny. Sure, they've crossed his palm with silver. Plenty. Well, after that little salute to our uh, erstwhile uh, attorney general, Janine, I want to ask you, have you heard about Mm -hmm. the wonderful idea they have to support educators down in Florida? 
Yes, I have. And as a former teacher of 30-plus years, I am I'm just aghast. Um, apparently in Florida, well, I'll let you tell the story, but apparently they believe that a teacher's First Amendment rights stop at the school do- schoolhouse door uh, when they get their teaching credential as well. But go ahead. Well, you know, it seems that a state representative, huh, huh, Rommel by name, uh, who's yeah. so proud of this effort, it's, there's no sign of it on his website. He has proposed some legislation to put monitors in every classroom, videotaping mm-hmm. it, and a microphone on every teacher. You know, it's it's not enough that they let the yokels come in with their <clears throat> ill-informed opinion and, and re, readdress mm-hmm. the curriculum because, of course, the fools know better. Uh, but now they want to record every sound, every noise, every step, every word. You know, it's it's not enough that the they teachers have to buy supplies. It's not enough right. that they have to work off hours for free. And and now right. they want to monitor everything so that some fool somewhere who thought that, well, when they meant specific, they said Pacific, and he's shocked, shocked that there's another ocean. So... <laughs> So I, I nominate for, for, for my recidivist Cro-Magnon of the epoch, this uh, uh-huh. Mr. Rommel, who's, who's so proud. He's so proud oh. of this legislation. You can scour his website, this uh, dean of the Florida legislature, and there's no mention of it whatsoever. Except now, you can imagine there are plenty of opportunities where you can donate money. Right, right. Well, and it's Big Brother all over again. Uh, Again, I taught in St. Louis Public, which is St. Louis City, for 30 years. And, you know, once again, there seems to be this idea that once you acquired your credential and crossed the schoolhouse door, you no longer have First Amendment rights. And in which case, I I think that the teachers nationally to support their colleagues should go on strike. Seriously. Absolutely. I think this is one cup, Socrates. We should not suck. Exactly. And we have fought those battles here in St. Louis. Um, I would say that urban teachers tend to be more apt to fight um, because they understand the, the struggles. And I don't mean to sound like I'm, I'm, well, no, I will say it. Okay, Uh, suburban white teachers are less apt to take offense by this. And uh, there there is a schism, but I think it's time to strike. You know, just is. Yeah. So. Well, Janine, thank you so much for giving me a few minutes on this marvelous thing that you do. Uh, You know, I I put my time in the trenches, and I tell you, I (laughs) salute you every day knowing that you're continuing the battle. Please support Janine. Let her know how much you care. Let her know how proud of you or the work that she does tirelessly. Human rights, justice, and the environment. Janine, you're a triple threat, dear. Love you. <laughs> Thank you, my friend. And you're always welcome. We love having you. You're the founder. Okay. Well, thanks again. And solidarność. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Alrighty, so now on with our big story. 
So, and again, we always enjoy having Rick. He's the one that brought me into this entire thing, truth be told. Um, and it's so, so very generous with everything. So let's start. Um, you know, George Orwell once explained that, quote, all tyrannies rule through fraud and force. But once the fraud is exposed, they must rely exclusively on force. Now, this past March 21st, uh, this past March, I'm sorry, in 2021, journalist Jane Mayer published a piece in the New Yorker titled, quote, Inside the Coke-Backed Effort to Block the Largest Selection Reform Bill in Half a Century. Now, Meyer's piece is one of many written by progressive voices which clearly exposed the fraudulent nature of our political process and the political actors which serve corporate masters in U.S. legislatures, both at the state level and the federal level, that also that includes those that serve the corporate masters in our judicial chambers and, yes, the Oval Office of both parties. Now, while Mayer's article focuses on the GOP and its libertarian wing, it should be noted that this level of wholesale political corruption is not limited to the GOP. It includes, most definitely, the ranks of corporate Democrats as well. You might call them blue dogs. You might call them moderates. They're anything but progressive. So Mayer's piece features a leaked audio this was a, an odd, a discussion, phone discussion, on a, a, basically a, a, what do you call it, a, um, um, I'm sorry, folks. It was a group call. It was a leaked audio from the Coke-back-founded group known as Stand Together. Now, the leaked audio blatantly features public relations expert Kyle McKenzie, and they're all in a con- conference call, and the conference call not only includes Mr. McKenzie, but also an unnamed aide to Mitch McConnell and and some others. And they're discussing how they could possibly derail and discredit the latest legislative attempt to restore voting rights back in 2021, which was H.R. 1. Now, we know at this point H.R. 1 failed, and it failed in the Senate. It was passed in the House, but it failed in the Senate because the Republicans used the, I won't even call it the filibuster, the silent filibuster. People need to understand that, you know, if you saw the old movie, uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, and he does the traditional filibuster where he keeps talking, keeps talking until he drops, that is okay. But the silent filibuster isn't that. They just have to write on a piece of paper they intend to filibuster, boom, everything comes to a grinding halt with, with no sacrifice on their part at all. So McKenzie is discussing these strategies based on this alleged research they did. And the strategies presented by McKenzie, um, they were really, you know, these were strategies that they were trying to formulate to derail voting rights, okay, to essentially nullify the very root of democracy, which is voting rights. And McKenzie discussed it as casually as someone else would, you know, talk about, you know, the best pie crust recipe with their neighbor. There's no moral hand-wringing there, just this indifferent consideration uh, regarding which propaganda methods would best manipulate what they consider to be a stupid and intellectually lazy public. Now, since Mayor's piece aired, H.R. 1 failed, again, as I said before, due to the filibuster, but 
a new Voting Rights Act surfaced in the Senate. Now, this is now called, and it, it's actually under consideration now in, 20, in January of 2022, and it's called the Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act. Now, I'm going to also discuss what's actually in the new bill and why it won't go anywhere because of the filibuster. I'm going to end this discussion, this big story, with a theory espoused by professors, espoused by law school professor Erwin Shermerinsky, who's the dean of the UC Berkeley Law School, and Professor Burton Newborn of the NYU School of Law. And their theory details how we can actually end the silent filibuster with the vice president and newsflash. We don't need a single Republican to do it. So that's our big story. And as I said earlier in the show, our Jackass of the Week segment, which features what, of course, I refer to as jackassery, uh, features, again, self-described theocratic fascist Matt Walsh, who's on the Daily Wire. Walsh recently expressed the same desire to limit voting rights, but he did so with more flourish and intellectual honesty because he at least explicitly stated that most people should not have voting rights instead of hiding behind an alleged philanthropy like Charles Koch from Koch Industries. Okay, so let's go to our first document. And that's the thing, too. Unlike Mr. Walsh and Ben Shapiro at the Daily Wire, I actually, I actually attribute and list our sources. So the first piece I mentioned already, and Jane Mayer wrote this um, in a published, excuse me, in the New Yorker, um, excuse me, on March 29, 2021, and the headline reads, Inside the Coke-Backed Coke Effort to Block the Largest Election Reform Bill in Half a Century. On a leaked conference call, leaders of dark money groups and an aide to Mitch McConnell expressed frustration with the popularity of the legislation, even among Republican voters. So, she gives some, you know, some quotes. For instance, H.R. 1 would have stemmed the flow of dark money from political donors like billionaire oil magnate Charles Koch. Okay. Now, this is based on, the, again, this was leaked audio on a conference call, and it was led by Kyle McKenzie, who is listed as the research director for the Koch-run advocacy group Stand Together, and this was on a January 8th call. Okay. So, obviously, it's behind closed doors. It's a strategic meeting. Got to get a little water here, folks. This. And they, this was a recording that was obtained by the New Yorker. And basically, it was between this policy advisor to Mitch McConnell and leaders of several prominent conservative groups, including run by Koch Brothers Network. And they're all, but McKenzie's running the call and running the presentation. They're all worried that these, some of these proposed election reforms might actually be okay with Republican voters, especially conservative voters. And so they're really upset about this and trying to strategize to see how they can get around it. And what they're really alarmed about is the popularity of one specific provision in the bill, which, quote, called for more public disclosure about secret political donors. In this call, they try to, some of the people in the call try to equate keeping their identities, donors' identities, 
as anonymous, they tried to equate that with uh, free speech rights, but it isn't. Okay, that's a bogus argument. Um, free speech rights means that, yes, you have a right to say what you like within certain limits, but you're not going to be shielded from consequences necessarily. And what they're arguing for is privilege, but we'll get into that in a second. So the participants in this call all conceded that the idea of identifying these dark money donors was, quote, so popular that it wasn't worth trying to mount a public advocacy campaign to shift opinion, end quote. Instead, um, it reported that some senior Coke operatives said that, quote, opponents would be better off ignoring the will of the, the will of American voters and trying to kill the bill in Congress. Okay? That tells you something right there. They, these people, they despise democracy. Sorry about the folks. Now, Kyle McKenzie, who is the research director for Stand Together, which is a Cochran advocacy group, told other conservatives on this call that he had what he referred to as a spoiler. To quote McKenzie, quote, when presented with a very neutral description of the bill, people were generally supportive. The most worrisome part is that conservatives were actually as supportive as the general public when they read the neutral description. End quote. In fact, he warned further, quote, there's a large, very large chunk of conservatives who are supportive of these types of efforts, end quote. So McKenzie then conceded that people who oppose the legislation would have to rely on Republicans, you know, in the Senate. And again, this is when was when HR1 was still under debate, to use what McKenzie referred to as under the, quote, under the dome type strategies, meaning legislative maneuvers beneath Congress's roof, such as the filibuster to stop the bill because turning public opinion against it was incredibly difficult, end quote. And what happened? Mitch McConnell made sure the filibuster was used. And every single Republican, I think with the exception of maybe one, marched in lockstep. Okay. Now, keep in mind, I'm not totally just blaming the Republicans because the corporate Democrats, people like Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, but also some others like John Tester and some of the others, and Nancy Pelosi, and even the president, have been working to preserve the silent filibuster, knowing damn well that nothing, nothing can happen in terms of voting rights, Nothing can happen in terms of Medicare for all. Nothing can happen that would actually benefit the public until the, fil the silent filibuster is gone. All right? So this is a conspiracy of all these political actors. You know, it's just, in my opinion, the Democrats are playing good cop to the Republicans' bad cop, but it's still a con, nonetheless. Now, getting back to this, McKenzie warned that the worst thing that conservatives could do, quote, would be to try to engage with the other side on the argument that the legislation stops billionaires from buying elections, end quote. I'm going to repeat that one again because this is so damning, okay? McKenzie, he's this research director from Stand Together, this Koch-funded group, he warned that the worst thing conservatives could do, quote, would be to try to engage with the other side on the argument that the legislation 
stop billionaires from buying elections, end quote. And, you know, this point's key. We're, we're seeing this reflected in the corporate press. You know, we see these corporate, the corporate media um, questioning whether or not the filibuster should be modified. We see the corporate media really touting uh, bipartisanship as this holy grail. And it's happening on both conservative and alleged Democratic corporate paid media. But let's think about, especially the bipartisanship nonsense, and think about it. Bipartisanship is being heralded, again, as this holy grail. But what it really does is demands that progressives, real progressives, shut up and obey. Bipartisanship is dog whistle political code for maintaining the status quo, because you know damn well that the Republicans are never going to give in. Because the Republican Party is no longer the party of Eisenhower or Abraham Lincoln. The GOP of Trump, quite simply, is the GOP of white supremacy, the GOP of neo-Nazism, and yes, the GOP of oligarchy, of autocracy. Nothing more. And the Democrats, as long as they can keep on their little piece of pie, they're not going to rock that boat, even though they should. And this really dovetails quite nicely with Rick's poems um, about the Attorney General, who, by the way, yes, our Attorney General should get on the ball and indict Trump already, as well as every, every political that was involved in the planning, funding, implementation of January 6th, period. No exceptions. None. And Merrick Garland has not seen fit to do so. So, and I'll mention to our listeners, I had no idea what Rick was really going to write about. I knew it was something about Merrick Garland. That's it. So, what can I say? Great minds must think alike. But anyway, this is this idea that even, even a libertarian you could say a libertarian, selfish bastard like Charles Koch, who despises democracy, the people who work from admit that if the word gets out that HR1 or any voting rights bill would stop billionaires from buying elections, it is even ringing true on conservative, on the conservative side of things. So they have to keep pushing the fact that the filibuster is something that has to be maintained to protect minority rights and so does bipartisanship. Well, first of all, understand this. The U.S. Senate is already very much maintaining minority rights, all right? The U.S. Senate is very undemocratic because what sense does it make for small states like Wyoming, for instance, who has less, what, a little over 500,000 total population? Why should they get the same two senators as California with 36 million people and they get the same two senators too. That that system, it isn't just that it protects minority representation, and we're talking about numerical minorities, not racial minorities. It actually elevates numeric minorities in states that tend to be pretty much all white and conservative. It elevates their representation to a privileged status, and then a state like California, which, which is, I think, the fifth largest economy in the world, gets the same flimsy two senators. That is very anti-democratic. So this is what's happening. So they have to talk about 
how bipartisanship is so important, except bipartisanship is crap. That's basically telling the people who won the election to shut up and do what the losers tell you to do. You know, when was Mitch McConnell elected president? When was Joe Manchin? They weren't. So McKenzie, again, leading this call, goes on. He says, you know, that there's tons of other arguments. Um, McKenzie explained that basically this co-founded group, Stand Together, had invested substantial resources to, quote, see if we could find any message that would activate and persuade conservatives on this issue. So they were worried because even conservatives can see that, yes, billionaires are buying elections. Now, this article that Mayer wrote also, um, also quoted some email state, part of an email statement from Gretchen Ryder, who is the Senior Vice President of Communications for Stand Together. Now, Ms. Ryder refused to respond to questions about the conference call or the co-group's research, but she did email a statement which said the following in part, quote, defending civil liberties requires more than a soundbite, uh, end quote. And then she added that the group does oppose H.R. 1 because, quote, a third of it restricts First Amendment rights. And then Miss um, Ryder included a link to this op-ed that was written by another co-affiliated group, uh, which is also a Tea Party group, Americans for Prosperity. And the op-ed argues that H.R. 1, quote, violates donors' freedom of expression by requiring the disclosure of the names of those who contribute $10,000 or more to nonprofit groups involved in election spending. Such transparency, the op-ed suggests, could subject donors who would prefer to remain anonymous to retaliation or harassment, end quote. Okay, this is a bogus argument, and it lacks any logical transition. Freedom of expression is guaranteed from government reprisals in the First Amendment. Read the Constitution, lady. But the First Amendment does not include censoring other parts of the public who happen to disagree with your point. But apparently, Gretchen Ryder never got the memo, and I don't know if she's a lawyer or not. Apparently, she never really read the First Amendment. Okay? So there's more that goes on. The State Policy Network was involved. Um, that is a confederation of right-wing think tanks. They have affiliates in every state. Um, they convened the conference call after the Democrats' uh, twin victories in the Senate runoffs in Georgia. Uh, participants included Heather Lauer, who's the executive director of Peoples United for Privacy, and apparently that's a conservative group that's fighting to keep nonprofit donor identity secret. Grover Norquist was also involved. He's the founder and president of Americans for Tax Reform, and he was very upset at what the disclosure provisions in HR1 could potentially accomplish. Uh, to quote Norquist, Quote, the left is not stupid, they're evil. They know what they're doing. They have correctly decided that this is the way to disable the freedom movement, end quote. Well, you know, good old Grover is entitled to his free speech rights, but Soros left it. And, you know, the last time I checked, slandering and defaming people could result in civil lawsuits. You know, freedom or free speech rights don't come without associated responsibilities. People like Grover Norquist seem to be suggesting what can only be called unearned privilege 
and it's considered privileged because Norquist's suggested form would leave out any responsibility for those freedoms or any reciprocate. In fact, Norquist's freedom would also uh, omit any reciprocated rights for those who disagree with Norquist. So, wow, Mr. Grover Norquist seems to certainly enjoy his hefty helping of hypocrisy. But there's more um, with this call here. There were two top Republican congressional staffers. Oh, they were named. Good. Um, one was Caleb Hayes, who is the general counsel to the Republican on the House Administration Committee. He was in on this call. And the previously unnamed aide, which is a policy advisor to Mitch McConnell, was Steve Donaldson. And there's a quote from Donaldson. To quote Steve Donaldson, who again is a policy advisor to Mitch McConnell, he was in on the call, quote, when it comes to donor privacy, I can't stress enough how quickly things could get out of hand. We have to hold our people together, uh, end quote. And then he predicted the quote, the fight, is going to be a lo- the fight is going to be a long one. It's going to be a messy one, end quote. But then Donaldson insisted that good old Mitch wasn't going to back down. Uh, again, when Jane Mayer from the New Yorker contacted both Donaldson and Hayes, they uh, refused to respond to requests for comment. Uh, there was a spokesperson for Mitch McConnell named David Pop, who did respond to um, to the writer, and he said, "Quote: We don't comment on private meetings." End quote. Well, the thing is, though this was a private meeting. It was still regarding very public issues, all right? And so when they re- – they're being kind of stupid, actually, because when, re- when they refuse to comment, it just makes them look more guilty as far as I'm concerned. So now um, this article, uh, basically Jane Mayer uh, then quotes from somebody named Nick Sergey, who is the executive director of Documented. And Documented is a progressive watchdog group and what they do is they investigate corporate money and politics. And according to Sergey, um, Sergey thought, yeah, it was it made sense that McConnell staffer was not only on the call because was on the call because the proposed legislation quote poses a very real threat to McConnell's source of power within the Republican Party, which has always been fundraising end quote. And Sergey went on to explain from Documented that this close coordination on messaging and tactics between Republican GOP leadership and outside groups, though, was kind of surprising to see. Um, Keep in mind, the House of Representatives passed H.R. 1, and H.R. 1, the House version, was described by the Times, and the New York Times, that is, as, quote, the most substantial expansion of voting rights in half a century. Um, and it is, but once again, um, you had the GOP implement the filibuster and of course the Senate killed it off. And this is something that has to happen. We have to have voting rights because this all started in 2010 with the Citizens United decision because that opened up all sorts of loopholes for dark money where the very wealthy could contribute through multiple groups, any amount of money. In fact, there's no way really of knowing if some of this 
some of these wealthy people, corporations contributing to Republicans, we don't really have a way of knowing even if these are coming from foreign sources, which is very illegal, actually. They're not supposed to accept campaign contributions from foreign sources, but there's no way to check it. Okay, And that's the way they want it. Dark money groups want to keep it going. Um, they, can, they can contribute funds to political action committees. Um, they can... There is a limited percentage of funds that they spend directly on electoral politics, but a lot of times what they do, these very rich corporations and individuals, they donate through a non-for-profit corporation, and often these are called social welfare organizations. So they don't have to publicly disclose their donors, and then they're, they're essentially dark money groups that are technically legally money laundering is what they're doing. And this just creates what mayor described as the daisy chain of groups that give to each other. And because of that, it makes it virtually impossible to identify the original source of the funding. And as a result, you have this cascade, what she calls cascade, quote, of anonymous cash flooding into American elections. And that's what's happening. So when you see Stand Together, and they call themselves a social welfare group because they do a certain amount, you know, building like neighborhood gardens in poor areas, things like that, they hide behind it. Basically what the Supreme Court did with Citizens United and after that is they legalized what can only be called political money laundering uh, of basically money contributed by unknown groups, dark money. It's political money laundering or dark money been made technically legal as far as we know that is. And that's the thing. We don't know all of it. Um, and it's no surprise, There's, uh, there were some other facts. The Nonpartisan Center for Responsive Politics, uh, they reported that in 2020, um, that election cycle on the federal level, over a billion dollars with a B was spent by dark money groups that, you know, again, kept the identity of their donors secret. And of that total, more than $654 million came, you're going to plot, came from only 15 groups. You know, 15, the number that comes after 14 and before 16, I'm not kidding. And, oh, my God, guess who the top spender benefited? The top spender was a group called One Nation. Again, another dark money group. They call themselves the social welfare group. And who are they tied to in the GOP? Mitch McConnell. Wow. So once again, this is something that has to happen. And HR1 specifically called for disclosure for the first time, quote, of large donors trying to exert control over the selection of judicial nominees as well. So this is something where HR1 was not only going to identify these dark, these dark money donors by name, okay, and basically let me back up a little bit. There are some people that might worry, well, I gave $25, you know, to this group. I don't want my boss knowing. HR1 had nothing to do with that. HR1 specifically required the um, identification and exposure of donors who give $10,000 or more, including those that give to social welfare groups and have those social welfare groups identified especially if the donation was spent 
basically affect or sway an election. Um, donors that fund what they call, quote, non-election-oriented activities by those groups can remain anonymous. So no, you don't have to worry. But there was one other thing. HR1 specifically did for the first time that no other campaign uh, campaign monies, campaign law would do, and that is it specifically called, quote, for the disclosure for the first time of large donors trying to exert control over the selection of judicial nominees. And that provision targets groups such as the Judicial Crisis Network on the right and Demand Justice on the left. They both mounted multi-million dollar public advocacy campaigns to, quote, influence the confirmation of Supreme Court nominees. Okay. So if you wonder how these judges came about, like Amy Coney Barrett, for instance, when I was a kid, only people in the legal profession or directly in politics knew who these, these nominees were. You know, and then you'd learn through the media. But this this has been in the works, okay? And I don't know much about demand justice, but the Judicial Crisis Network, yes, they have done quite a bit to influence the judicial nominees, especially on the Supreme Court. Leonard Leo is one of the people that almost unilaterally makes the final decision. And this is why we have people on the Supreme Court that essentially lean more theocratic, all right? It doesn't really bode well for people that not only believe in diversity, but also it doesn't bode well for religious minorities, okay? Uh, it doesn't bode well for separation of church and state, which explains some of the rulings we've seen recently. Um, so then Mayor also quoted Brendan Fisher, who's a campaign finance reform advocate who was in favor of the legislation. Uh, and Fisher said the conference call showed that, quote, wealthy special interests are working hard to protect a broken status quo where billionaires and corporations are free to secretly buy influence, end quote. Now, Fisher directs the Campaign Legal Center's federal reform program, and he also added that the, um, the actual call itself exposed, quote, the reality that cracking down on political corruption and ending dark money is popular with voters across the political spectrum, and it is. So we're going to move on, all right? You can read this article yourself. It was March of 21, written by Jane Mayer, and the headline, once again, is Inside the Coke-Backed Effort to Block the Largest Election Reform Bill in Half a Century. So now we're going to move on. And, and again, I want you to notice the difference because when you listen to podcasts, say, from the Daily Wire, it is rare that they attribute any sources. They pontificate. They do, especially Mr. Walsh. Very few facts, no documentation, or very little documentation, in all fairness. And then, of course, you have the, the issue of Ben Shapiro's voice. All right, I listened to him, and I thought, hmm, as a speech pathologist, part of me felt like saying, oh, oy vey, this little nebbish needs voice lessons, okay? Because, frankly, he sounds like a demented chipmunk on speed. I'm just going to say it. And before anybody screams anti-Semitism, I'm also Jewish, so 
gain enough 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 is enough. Okay, so we now know that there is a new leaner streamlined voting rights bill that's being pushed by Democrats in the Senate. Okay? I'm going to talk about what's actually in the new bill. It doesn't include as much as H.R. 1 for the People Act, but it has a lot of the big provisions. Um, keep in mind, though, Chuck Schumer and the others can talk about how they are so for voting rights. But until they end the silent filibuster, they know damn well it's not going to happen. Okay, But this way they get to stand up there and look like they're doing something when they're actually not. And that way, their corporate backers won't get mad at them either. And it's just pure crap. Let's move on. So there was a, a piece, recent piece, uh, on Insider. It was published January 13th, this month, 2022. And it was written by Grace Panetta. The headline is very simple and direct. What's in the major voting rights bill Senate Democrats, I'm sorry, what's in the major voting rights bill Senate Democrats are mounting a left-ditch effort to pass. And it's saying, you know, they're facing an uphill battle because they know the Republicans are going to filibuster. They know this. Now, they called this new leaner bill the Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act, and here's what it would do. Okay? First of all, the way they got it onto the floor, they used some some, um, procedural tools to help them, you know, speed this up. So it shows they can do it if they want to. Uh, What they did, uh, Democrats used an unrelated NASA bill as a legislative vehicle so they could fast-track consideration of this new Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act in the Senate. And since the NASA bill had already been debated and considered by both chambers, both the House and the Senate, it was able to proceed to debate with a simple majority of 51 votes instead of the 60 votes required to advance debate. A little different, but anyway. So it was a creative procedural workaround. But unfortunately, the legislation itself will, you know, require 60 votes to pass because of the damn filibuster. Now, Schumer did promise to hold a vote on changing the filibuster rules in the Senate. And that's as reported by The Hill. Um, And that one's on, but Schumer's promise to change the filibuster rule is up in the air as well because you've got continued opposition from, you know, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, again, as reported by Politico on January 10th. And then what would happen, though, if this, by some miracle, they could get the 60 votes and this bill would pass. What would the Freedom to Vote Act, or really, let's call it by its full name, what would the Freedom to Vote John R. Lewis Act do? Now, I'm going to read some of this directly from the piece. That way nobody can say that I left something out or I misquoted or whatever. So now I'm reading directly from it. The Freedom to Vote Act John R. Lewis Act, will do the following. One, it will standardize voting election laws across the country. It would also, two, significantly expand voting access. And three, it would also include 
reversing the effects of many dozens of new state-level voting restrictions passed this year. Okay? In other words, it would reverse the effects of all these voter suppression bills at the state level that Republicans have pushed. The John Lewis bill would also restore key provisions of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 that have been struck down or weakened by the Supreme Court, and specifically the Shelby decision, where Chief Justice John Roberts infamously claimed that racism no longer existed, so he didn't see any reason for the pre-clearance requirement in the Voting, Act, Voting Rights Act of 1965 to remain. The bill would also change the way federal courts handle election cases. This is all very important stuff. So let's go into some specifics. The provisions of the Freedom to Vote Act, the slim down successor to H.R. 1. Okay? So let's go into it. Uh, so basically, after Republicans filibustered H.R. 1, a group of Senate Democrats drafted this leaner version. It did include feedback from Joe Manchin, but that's useless because we know Manchin's going to back the silent filibuster. So why would you even give Joe Manchin good press? Keep in mind, all 50 Senate Republicans moved to block debate on the bill, according to NewYorkTimes.com, when it did come up for a vote in late October. Okay, let's read the provisions, what the bill would require so we're going to get this is long. I'm just warning you. This is what the bill would require regarding voting access. So before I just read you the main goals, now these are the specifics in the bill. Okay? The bill would require the following on voting access. One, election day is a federal holiday. Two, online, automatic, and same-day voter registration. Three, a minimum of 15 days of early voting, including during at least two weekends. Four, no excuse mail voting with ample access to ballot drop boxes and online ballot tracking, in addition to streamlined election mail delivery by the U.S. Postal Service. Um, let's see now. Five, states would need to accept a wide range of forms of non-photographic identification in places where ID is required to vote. Six, Counting eligible voters on provisional ballots cast in the wrong precinct. Okay, so let's say you get sent to the wrong precinct, but so you, you, they give you a provisional ballot. That provisional ballot would now be counted. It isn't right now. That's what a lot of people do not understand. Seven, restoring voting rights to formerly incarcerated people convicted of felonies. Imposes stricter regulations on voter list maintenance that make it harder for states to remove eligible voters from the rolls, okay? When they remove you from the, vote, from the rolls like that, that's referred to as vote caging. Nine, more protections and resources to serve voters with disabilities and overseas military voters. Ten, greater federal protections and oversight for voting in U.S. territories. Eleven, improving voter registration resources and outreach in addition to reauthorizing and strengthening the U.S. Election Assistance Commission. And 12, the bill includes the Right to Vote Act, which creates an affirmative right to vote in federal law. That last part is so incredibly important. The next part, 
The bill would also require the following regarding election administration and redistricting. One, prohibits partisan gerrymandering by requiring states to use certain criteria when drawing new congressional districts. Two, requires states to use voter verifiable paper ballots and conduct post-election audits. Three, gives cybersecurity grants to states and directs the EAC to strengthen cybersecurity standards for voting equipment. Four, uh, prohibits local election officials from being fired or removed without cause. Five, makes interfering with voter registration a federal crime and imposes stricter penalties against harassment, threats, and intimidation of election workers. And six, restates chain of custody requirements protecting the integrity of ballots and election materials, a provision meant to combat unofficial partisan audits. I see our our favorite caller from 111111111 has raised his hand on his back and not going to happen. Again, I've mentioned that before. Let's move on. The bill would also require the following on campaign finance. One, the bill includes the Disclose Act, which targets so-called dark money in elections, and the Honest Ads Act, which seeks to enhance transparency in campaign advertising. Two, creates a public financing program for House elections and allows candidates to use campaign funds for personal use services, including child care. Three, creates a federal obligation for campaigns to report instances of foreign interference. Four, stricter enforcement of illegal coordination between single candidate PACs and campaigns. And five, uh, stronger enforcement of campaign finance regulations by the Federal Election Commission. These are all very important features. Now we're going to move on to provisions from the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. This is a separate part. The John, Lewis, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, quote, takes particular aim at the Supreme Court and federal courts, seeking to undo rulings that have struck down or weakened key components of the landmark Voting Rights Act of 1965. I'm reading straight from the article, the direct quote. Most significantly, it creates a new formula to restore the federal preclearance requirement, mandating states with histories of discrimination to seek permission from the federal government before enacting new rules or redistricting plans, okay, end quote. See, the Supreme Court, they struck down the enforcement mechanism for the Voting Rights Act of 1965 by, by basically um, striking down preclearance. See, when the Voting Rights Act was first brought in, of 1965, was brought into being, it was a way to combat all the uh, injustice of Jim Crow laws, which required literacy tests and all sorts of insane things. Um, and so what the Voting Rights Act of 1965 did in order to make sure that these states with histories of discrimination <clears throat> that used this Jim Crow type regime, in order to make sure they were following the law, they created this preclearance requirement. And preclearance basically said that Anytime one of these states wanted to change even the slightest little election rule, they had to get approval from the federal government first, from the Department of Justice. And this is what nipped uh, Jim Crow in the bud. Unfortunately, 
2013 Shelby v. Holder decision, which is also known as the Shelby decision, um, struck down the preclearance requirement. And it should be noted that Chief Justice Roberts wrote the Shelby decision himself, and he, he really and cl cluelessly claimed that racism wasn't a problem in regard to voting rights any longer, and because John Roberts didn't see racism or vestiges of it in his own segregated, gated community, um, then racism and voting and discrimination in voting obviously didn't exist in his world. Keep in mind, Chief Justice John Roberts didn't appear to offer a single shred of documentation proving his allegation that racism was no longer a problem affecting voting rights. It was just his own opinion, which he unjustly inflicted on us. And you have to also know, too, that if you go back and look at John Roberts' career, because he was actually a, a DOJ attorney, I think, during the Reagan years, he made striking down the preclearance provision of the Voting Rights Act of 65 his life's work. Because when you strike down the preclearance provision, you don't have an enforcement mechanism. And when you do that, the Voting Rights Act is dead on arrival. And he did it. The fact that nobody called him out on it, why didn't Eric Holder say, where is your, sir, where is your documentation showing that this is no longer needed. I don't understand it. Uh, this Voting Rights Act also undoes the Supreme Court's 21 decision in another case called Brnovich versus DNC. Now in the Brnovich case, it significantly watered down the protection against race-based voter discrimination under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And that's as documented by businessinsider.com. Um, it was written, I believe, in July of 21, you can check it out yourself. Now the House passed a version of this bill. The Senate version has some minor differences, but the Senate version of this part, this John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, the Senate version, guess what? It was filibustered by all except one Senate Republican in November. Okay, The John Lewis portion does a little more, and I'm reading straight from this directly. One, a quote, one, it reverses the Supreme Court's new guideposts and standards from the Brnovich decision that make it harder for plaintiffs to prove racial discrimination under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, and that's as documented by Business Insider. Two, the John Lewis portion also enshrines judicial precedent and legislative history to strengthen efforts to draw majority-minority districts under the parameters of the Voting Rights Act. Three, it restores, yay, the federal preclearance regime that the Supreme Court struck down in Shelby. The bill creates a new coverage formula that requires states with recent histories of voting rights legislation. Four, and I'm reading straight from this, uh, it, quote, takes aim at the federal courts by requiring judges to explain their reasoning in emergency ruling they take up on the so-called shadow docket and tries to limit judges from relying solely on the proximity to the election in deciding emergency cases on election rules known as the Purcell Principle. Five, the Senate version of the law also includes the Election Worker and Polling Place Protection Act, which provides greater federal protections for election workers 
against harassment and intimidation, and six, the Senate version further taps on the Native American Voting Rights Act, a bill that strengthens voting rights and voter protections for voters in Indian country. Again, all those provisions I read straight from the article, direct quotes. We had another caller from the 917 area code. Um, again, I don't take calls unless we have time at the end, and then I announce it. So if these two bills fail, and, you know, they, they are expected to fail, okay? We're talking about the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, and we're also talking about the Freedom to Vote Act. So they're going to go together. If these two companion bills fail, and they're expected to because of the filibuster, the best chance for election reform could, could fall back on what's called the Electoral Count Act of 1887 and basically updating it. Now, the, the Electoral Count Act of 1887, quote, governs how Congress counts electoral votes and seeks to provide a pathway for Congress to resolve disputed elections, end quote. And basically, there's a group of lawmakers in both chambers that are pursuing four possible ways to reform the law. In the Senate, there's a group of Democrats led by Senator Angus King, as reported by the Washington Post. They're planning on introducing a bill in the legislation. There's also a bipartisan group of moderate senators, as reported by Axios.com, exploring the issue. So I'm not going to go into that too much. There's not a lot here. I'll have to go back to it another day. So what do some of these people think about it? Well, we have a quote from Senator Mitt Romney. Now, Romney was on, I believe, was Meet the Press today, and he was interviewed by Chuck Todd, and he was talking about we have to end this division. Now, it's pretty easy for him to say that because, again, he's a white Christian male who came from a wealthy family. He's never suffered from discrimination of any type a day in his life. He has no clue. But this article quoted Romney, and it said, quote, it's early in the process. We exchanged the list of changes we'd like to see as corrections we'd like to make to the act, as well as other provisions related to elections, <clears throat> end quote. Now, he was a member of the bipartisan group. Again, my response to Senator Romney is, must be nice to have that much white Christian male privileges, privilege to be that politically tone deaf. And again, they're talking about this. So let's move on now. All right, we've talked about what's in the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Bill. Okay, you can look it up yourself on businessinsider.com. Yes, not keeping any secrets. But what all this has in common, and it all comes down to, is the silent filibuster. As long as that is allowed to stand, we will get nothing done. Just, it just is. So let's talk about the unconstitutional nature of the silent filibuster and what we could do about it. And I talked about this several months ago, um, and we're going to talk about it again. It's patently clear that no legitimate voting rights bill will ever exist in this racist nation until the silent filibuster is outlawed. And it should be outlawed because it's a denial of equal representation. So... I went to this piece that I talked about months ago. This was a piece written by Erwin uh, Shermerinsky and Burton Newborn. It was published in the LA Times op-ed page 
on March 22, 2021. Erwin Shermerinsky is, U- is Dean of the UC Berkeley School of Law. Uh, Bert Newborn is the Norman Dorson Professor of Civil Liberties at the NYU or New York University School of Law. So their credentials are pretty impressive. And Shermerinsky has written extensively, he's written multiple books on the Constitution and made it really understandable to the average person. So this is the headline they wrote back this past March. Quote, the filibuster is unconstitutional. Here's how Vice President Harris can take it on. Goes on to say, Vice President Kamala Harris in presiding over the Senate has power to change the filibuster as, you'll never guess, Nixon did. I know it's kind of crazy sounding. It turns out that the one good thing Richard Nixon did in his entire rotten life was when he was vice president, he actually went after the filibuster, probably for the wrong reasons, but this is what it is. Okay, so let's move on. Um, So they're saying that the vice president, any vice president, is technically the president of the Senate. And according to these two advisory opinions dating back to the 50s, written by then Vice President Richard Nixon, they, any vice president can declare, quote, the current Senate filibuster rule unconstitutional, okay, end quote. Quote, this would open the door for discussions on a new rule that would respect the minority without giving it an unconstitutional veto, end quote. So you never thought that Richard Nixon would be, quote, the, would be the filibuster slayer, if you will, but he was. And here's what happened. It's 1957. Richard Nixon is vice president under Eisenhower. Keep in mind, everybody forgets this point. The vice president is the presiding officer of the Senate, not the majority leader. And what Nixon did is he issued two advisory opinions that, are, that can be looked up. They're archived at thewilsoncenter.org. And these two advisory opinions, quote, I'm reading directly from it, quote, holding that a crucial provision of the Senate's filibuster rule requiring two-thirds vote to amend it was unconstitutional. To go on with the quote, quote, Nixon's constitutional determination was reaffirmed by subsequent vice presidents Hubert Humphrey and Nelson Rockefeller, end quote. Humphrey was a Democrat, Rockefeller was a Republican. Okay. Bipartisan. And the Chermerinsky and Newborn go on to explain that it was Nixon's two advisory opinions that allowed the Democratic-controlled Senate in 2013 and the Republican-controlled Senate in 2017 to eliminate the filibuster for all executive and judicial nominees and just have a simple majority vote. Okay? That meant that Al Gore could have used it. Um, Joe Biden could have used it. All right? Any vice president. And Vice President Harris has the same power to rule, quote, that the current version of the Senate filibuster, which essentially establishes a 60-vote supermajority rule to enact legislation in the Senate is unconstitutional because 
It denies states, quote, equal suffrage in the Senate. And it's the, the uh, quote, equal suffrage of the Senate, this is as documented in archives.com, the Federal Register. And to go on, it denies states equal, let me go on. So I'm going to back up a little bit. Vice President Harris has the same power. She can, quote, rule, and I'm going to read the quote again, quote, rule that the current version of the Senate filibuster, which essentially establishes a 60-vote supermajority rule to enact legislation in the Senate, is unconstitutional because it denies states equal suffrage in the Senate in violation of Article 5 of the Constitution. End quote. Mike dropped. Like, bye, Felicia. Anyway, let's face it. The U.S. Senate, to begin with, is inherently an undemocratic institution. It is um, asinine that every state, no matter how small their population, gets the same two senators. So you have, for instance, a low population state like Wyoming, according to this article, has only 580,000 people there. They get the same two senators as California with 40 million residents. And what that does, according to this article, excuse me, quote, a person in Wyoming thus has 65 times more voting power in the Senate than a person living in California. And to go on, quote, the current 60-vote filibuster rule makes this imbalance even worse. I'm just reading straight from a quote. Under the 60-vote rule, 41 senators representing about a third of the population can outweigh 59 senators representing two-thirds. This situation surely violates the principle of equal representation. I'm sorry. This situation surely violates the principle of equal representation in voting. For example, the one-person, one-vote rule that the Supreme Court long ago applied to state legislative and congressional districts, end quote. says it right there. And then the two professors, Shermerinsky and Newborn, asked another question. Well, um, you know, can the Senate, the lack of representation and fairness, be cured by creating some new internal voting rules? Okay. Does the Senate have authority to do that? Well, they go on to say, Article I of the Constitution does not appear to permit a broad 60-vote supermajority rule. Again, straight quote. I'll say it again. Quote, Article I of the Constitution does not appear to permit a broad 60-vote supermajority rule. Um, end quote. And they go on to say that the supermajority votes in the Senate are allowed by Article I only in, quote, narrowly defined cases like ratifying treaties, overturning presidential vetoes, and convicting impeached officers, end quote. Another quote is, quote, the strong implication is that unless the action falls into these narrow exceptions, the Senate should operate by majority rule. Article I says nothing about a general supermajority requirement for the enactment of all legislation in the Senate, end quote. Pretty direct. Now they go on to mention how the 17th Amendment did improve things a bit because it it shifted the election of senators from state legislation, uh, state legislation, the, the 
sorry, folks. The 17th Amendment changed the election of senators from, you know, at that point. Okay, let me back up here. I'm getting a little tongue-tied here. The 17th Amendment changed how U.S. senators were elected. Before that, they were elected, if you will, by state legislators and party bosses. And the 17th Amendment changed that so that senators were elected by the people. And these two authors say that while the 17th Amendment, you know, improved things, um, it also kept the founders' decision to give each state two senators with equal voting rights. And they go on to say, but, quote, a 60-vote supermajority rule destroys the mathematical equality of each senator's vote. I'm going to say that one again. So it's bad enough that every state, no matter how small the population, gets the same two senators. But they go on to say that, quote, a 60-vote supermajority rule destroys the mathematical equality of each senator's vote. It just waters it down, end quote, okay? So these two professors believe that what Vice President Harris needs to do is rule on the current version of the silent Senate filibuster that it, that it operates, quote, as an unconstitutional 60-vote supermajority requirement for the enactment of general legislation in violation of Article 5, the 17th Amendment, and the conditional, I'm sorry, let me back up again. So, sorry about that, folks. It's a long show, and my voice is starting to give, but let me back up a little. Shemarinsky and Newborn argue the following. I'm going to read directly from it. Quote, the 60-vote supermajority rule destroys the mathematical equality of each senator's vote. Okay, end quote. Now, what Shemarinsky and Newborn believe is that Vice President Harris needs to, quote, rule that the current version of the Senate filibuster operates as an unconstitutional 60-vote supermajority requirement for the enactment of general legislation in violation of Article 5, the 17th Amendment, and the constitutional presumption of majority rule. Such a ruling would trigger two events. The full Senate could seek to overrule Harris by majority vote. In that case, the senators would no longer be debating the filibuster as mere political policy, but but as a profound constitutional question, end quote. Okay? And it's a very important case that they are saying. And professors Newborn and Shemarinsky are saying the vice president can move this forward. All right? She has the power, but does she have the political will, the backbone, and the integrity to do what needs to be done? Well, I'm happy that a woman is vice president and a woman who is a woman of color, but this has to be more than a vapid uh, surface change, all right? And voting rights, are basically, this has to happen. Newborn and Shermerinsky are right on target. The fact is no one state should have an unconstitutional veto power, veto power, which the silent filibuster grants them. Okay, so in conclusion, first of all, the Koch-funded group named Stand Together uses images that on the surface seem intersectional, but aren't. You see videos, of, if you go to their website, Stand Together, you'll see videos of black, brown, tan, and white people working with what they call catalysts through the foundation to, you know, 
do nice things like build vegetable gardens and, and pull themselves by their bootstraps out of addiction via athletic activity. Sounds lovely on the surface, but what you don't see or hear is blinding and deafening. The homeless or the unhoused are presented as minimally educated and lacking skills. You know, it's, it's the old, you're poor because you're lazy and stupid stereotype, but with a more polished flourish. Now, the foundation claims to be fighting homelessness, but only tackles the surface issues such as addiction or lack of proper upbringing. It, they don't directly articulate this, but it's implied very strongly. What the foundation doesn't do is deal with the deeper causes of homelessness and poverty in the U.S., namely the starvation wages many are forced to accept, starvation wages which, when compared to the true cost of living, would appall even Ebenezer Scrooge pre-epiphany. <clears throat> what isn't covered is the fact that many homeless people do work a full 40 hours or more but can't cover the most basic expenses. What isn't covered is the obscene cost of health care, coupled with the thievery of the private insurance industry, which in tandem bankrupts many formerly middle class or modestly affluent people resulting in homelessness. What isn't covered is the fact that the very same billionaire, Charles Koch, has funded groups to ensure that a living wage or Medicare for all or voting rights never sees the light of day. And finally, what isn't covered is the fact that Charles Koch is launching a public relations army to make sure that renewed voting rights are strangled to death like a baby in bathwater. He's using these foundations doing this alleged charity work as political cover for the way they are, in theory, legally money laundering, legally money, let me go back up. What they, are what they aren't covering is the fact that groups like Stand Together, they do a certain amount of charity group, and that serves as cover for what can only be called technically legal money laundering of dark money from big donors, period. And what also isn't covered is the fact that voting rights, you know, his PR people would have you believe that voting rights are a minor issue compared to dealing with the economy. And the voting rights are relatively trivial and represent an unnecessary privilege. What you have to realize is without renewed and guaranteed voting rights, not only the right to vote, but the right to have your vote counted, the majority of us, you know, the great unwashed, unrich, will never gain any rights. Without guaranteed voting rights, we'll never see a living wage. We'll never see Medicare for all. We'll never see a true justice system where the wealthy cannot buy their way out of prison. We'll never see a fully funded public education system or even true First Amendment rights for anyone, for people and not corporations. All of these rights directly hinge on voting rights, on the right to vote, on the right to have your vote counted. So we looked at what's in the streamlined voting rights bill and still wondering why any honest or decent person or group who believes in democracy would object to any of its provisions. The answer we found is pretty simple. The GOP of Trump and the Supreme Court he appointed not only mocked the idea of popular democracy and the popular vote, but they despised both ideas. Make no mistake, the GOP would deny many of us our voting rights more savagely if they thought they could get away with it. Instead, they hide behind voter ID, voter ID issues and making voting as difficult as possible. In my home state of Missouri, like in Florida, there are no mask mandates and low vaccination rates. 
if I if I want to vote in the midterm because they don't have they stop mail in voting, I'm going to have to risk my life because I have a chronic lung disorder. Um, because again, there's no more vote by mail. There's also more restrictions in absentee voting. And yes, the Republican Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft, yes, John Ashcroft is his daddy. He's done nothing to ensure voting rights. Instead, his office claims they can't do anything because the GOP-controlled legislature controls the situation. Yet they pretend to support voting rights as they deny them. Finally, no voting rights legislation with any enforcement mechanism will ever see the light of day until the silent filibuster is nullified, period. Okay, so that's our big story. Now, I wish I had a drum roll or something. Our jackass of the week, conservative personality Matt Walsh, offers the same denial of voting rights but without the pretense of any legality. Walsh himself builds himself, Walsh builds himself on his own website as, quote, a theocratic fascist. Now, I downloaded this program, but I'm not very good with text, so I can't play it. But he, has, he did this program on August 4th of 2020. And the headline Walsh uses is, the real problem with voting is too many people are doing it, and it's too easy. Now, Walsh is a contributor to the Daily Wire. That's Ben Shapiro. And he thinks that basically too many people get to vote, and he doesn't believe people who, quote, have nothing to do but protest, end quote, should be allowed to vote. All right? He also thinks that you should have to pass a test to prove that you're capable of voting. And he calls it a sixth-grade level test, but damn, sounds a whole lot like the literacy, literacy test that old Jim Crow in the South used. Okay? And Walsh also talks about these protesters. He says, quote, the left has a never-ending supply of people who have nothing to do but protest, end quote. And I'm just going, okay, I don't know where he gets this information. And I desperately looked to see if he attributed any sourcing. So here is a lightly edited partial transcript of the segment of the episode. Well, this is what Matt Walsh has to say, quote, the real issue with voting is that there are too many people doing it and it's too easy to do. This has already been the case with, with, with voting in general. Mail-in voting will only exacerbate the ever-present problem. If you are a non-contributing ignoramus, someone who has no real stake in society and who contributes nothing of substance to it, who is not productive and knows nothing about our system, then you should not be able to participate in it, at least in the capacity of a voter. You know, voting ought to be a privilege reserved for informed, grown-up, contributing members of society. If you aren't paying taxes, then you, should have, you shouldn't have any say in where tax money, other people's money goes. Now, I wouldn't advocate for taking First Amendment rights away from protesters or ignorant, non-contributing dummies, as tempting of a thought as that might be at times. No, they have the right to speak their mind, of course, but they don't have the right to do it in the middle of the highway, but, and they don't have the right to do it while throwing Molotov cocktails. If you're not an informed tax-paying citizen, then you shouldn't be allowed to vote. Ignorant, non-contributing, non-productive people can march to the city annoying everyone as is their right, but they shouldn't have the right to dictate the direction of the country via the ballot box, end quote. Okay, there's so many Excuse me, my voice is giving out. There's so many wrong statements with what Walsh said. Apparently, when he's talking about taxpayers, I don't know for sure, but I'm fact he's talking about uh, people who pay 
property taxes directly, in other words, property owners. Now, if you rent an apartment or you rent a house, you are paying property tax because it's included in your rent, and but it's not in your name. And I'm just, just my suspicion. Um, <clears throat> again, this sounds a lot like old Jim Crow. All right. So, you know, he goes on to this, and, and as you listen to Walsh's claims, one thing stands out. And I'm going to have to cut this short because my voice is giving out now. Walsh almost never cites a single shred of evidence or mentions any documentation, any attribution to prove his assertions. Now, I, I especially love the part where Walsh claims that, quote, none of these leftist protesters actually work for a living, end quote. Any documentation, Mr. Walsh, to back up this claim? Or, or do you have really good insurance to pay the slander and defamation claims that should come your way? Just for the record, my little 62-year-old, little short self was a Ferguson protester. I taught for 30 years. I run my own tutoring business. I went to earlier protests when I was a full-time teacher on my own time. Cori Bush, you know, the U.S. Congresswoman, was a Ferguson and Black Lives Matter protester while she worked at, as a registered nurse and a pastor. Many in the crowd were older adults who worked full-time. The young people that were school-age often worked and went to school. Now, I don't have any actual numbers today, but I'm sure eventually I can access them. Plus, I'm not the one slandering and defaming others. Now, I'm aware that either that either Matt Walsh himself or his corporate handle, hand, okay, starting to study here, let me start again. I'm aware that either Matt Walsh himself or his corporate handlers could claim that perhaps I'm defaming Walsh by calling him a jackass. But we both know that wouldn't fly in any court. And they know that. For instance, let me explain. If I called Walsh a lie, for, for instance, if I called Walsh, eh, a lying, racist, neo-Nazi, theocratic nutjob that would worship anything, including rotting cheese balls, and fail to produce documentation proving the veracity of those claims, yeah, then they could sue me. If I reported that Walsh liked to kiss the Donald's butt cheeks without verifiable proof, yeah, then they could sue me. But calling Walsh a jackass due to his beliefs is a protected First Amendment right, which I embrace. Now, there's been a flurry of political hand-wringing about how divided our nation has become. The political talking heads, which masquerade as journalists uh, on paid media, continue to push this false equivalence argument, which is in and of itself a logical fallacy lacking any factual basis. I'll admit, we are divided. That much is true. Where I disagree with the talking heads of corporate journalism is any attribution of cause. What's causing the division? First of all, this division isn't new. It's always existed. This division is a vigorous remnant of our nation's entrenched racism, religious discrimination, misogyny, and a whole multitude of assorted other bigotries. You know, in the past, many of us that belong to various minority communities refused to fight. Instead, we worked to successfully assimilate with a very white Christian majority who, frankly, systemically abused us in multiple ways. But you know what? Donald Trump changed all that. His open and rampant white supremacy 
misogyny, his neo-Nazism was the last freaking straw. We're fighting back now, and the white Christian majority is enraged that what they view as their inferiors are refusing to enable our ongoing continued abuse. That's the difference. You know, here in the Midwest, the self-proclaimed Bible Belt, hypocrisy and hate grows profusely as spring wheat. And in my 62 years, I've seen how there is nothing more spiteful and full of insane, illogical rage as a white supremacist being called out for their ugliness, even provided proof of it. Now, my solution, if you don't want to be called out as, as a racist, then don't do racist things. Don't support racist politicians. And frankly, grow up. Grow some empathy and grow a conscience. But don't you dare complain about this division, which you've caused. And we refuse to continue to enable. My response to the corporate media claiming to be journalists when they decry the division in our nation, when they plead for peaceful talks and bipartisanship as police are systemically hunting blacks, just as an example. My response aptly comes from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on the nature of peace. And I'll end with this. To quote Dr. King, quote, true peace is not merely the absence of tension. It is the presence of justice. Amen. And with that, I will say good night and God bless us.